Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme, told live at the adults-only visual arts collective in Garden City, Idaho. I'm artistic director Jody Eichelberger. In the heat of the summer, we encourage you to go play in traffic under the guidance of our Story Story Stoplight. This month, Late Night turns yellow in our second show of the season with the theme, Yellow Light, on July 31st, 2018, with featured storytellers Beth Norton, Christopher Condon, and Don Brockett. The host for the evening marked a return appearance by Boise's blonde bombshell, Minerva Jane. Now let's speed through the light. It's story time. Welcome, Beth Norton! Okay, so uh, this was uh, this was in my mid twenties, a, l- a little while ago. Um, in my mid twenties, I was working uh, for as an instructor for an um, outdoor education program. Really original, I know. Um, and this, um, I had just been transferred from our base from the Keys, the Florida Keys, to the Mahusic Mountains in in Maine. And I was living on base. And this particular night, I was spending it alone in my room. And I was um, painting my toes and listening to music on my computer speakers as loud as they would go and thinking about boys. And um, my room was the third edition on the back of this house. And it was made entirely of untreated plywood. And it had this big painted floor that was great for dancing and a high steepled ceiling. And I had like candles lit and a bedside lamp and it was casting this like warm golden yellow light. And um, the, the door, the room had two big wooden, old wooden doors and one led to the rest of the house and one led directly outside. And um, this is gonna come into play later, so this is why this is important. But um, the second addition on the house was just this like long dark hallway with a basement and some stairs and then some rooms off to the side and then into the main house, which we called the acorn. I still don't know why. Um, there was a sunken living room and a, like a dining room table and a little kitchen and a room and a loft and it smelled like old house in there. Like <laughs> if you left your clothes in there for more than a day, they would smell like it, old house. Um, so I'm in my room and um, thinking about boys. I had just come off a brief but passionate uh, love affair with a, a very handsome Cuban who was 11 years my senior um, in the Keys. Yep, thank you. <laughs> he uh, taught me to dance la rumba and uh, I think once he even painted my toes. Um, his name was Victor. and. <laughs> And so when I moved to Maine, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for anything. I was not interested in anything. And of course, that's when um, people seem to want in. Um, and so I had caught the eye of the, this particular base camp's golden boy. He had like grown up there. He was incredibly handsome. He was like an expert whitewater canoeer and um, was getting his PhD in philosophy and um, and pursued me pretty hard and so we had made out a few times and flirted extensively and one night we were in my room and he was like green light go playing with my breasts and I was like <laughs> I was like whoa hold on slow down um, <laughs> I was like 
let's let's then I started to soliloquy about the future you know <laughs> maybe not the best time to do that but but um um, but I was like, he lived in Boston. I was like, Boston seems great. And he was like, whoa. <laughs> he was like, whoa, red light. Uh, he was like, um, you know, I've done this before. Like this, I just, I don't want to hurt you. I just know that this is, you know, this is a short-term thing for me. This is a summer thing. And uh, and I was like hurt and told him to leave <laughs> and out the door that went directly to the outside. So he did that. He left out, out the door. I was angry. Um, I felt like that very familiar sense of worthlessness that I often felt with men, which was that they only wanted me for what my body could offer and him that only for a short period of time at that. Um, and I was very angry and I was um, isolating myself from my coworkers. I wasn't going out and I was just kind of spiraling in this shame you know, pattern and I knew that this was affecting me more than him or anybody else. And I really wanted to have a good summer. I really wanted to get out there. And um, so I started to think about, uh, I remembered this, this um, Buddhist teaching that I had heard once that was like, I was like, how do I move past this? And it was like, the best way to move past anger for somebody is to have compassion for them. And so I started to rack my brain for, um, examples of a time when I had felt compassion for a man, and I drew a blank. <laughs> Total blank. Um, I had never felt compassion for a man, so... So... <laughs> thank you. My father abandoned me when I was born and um, had multiple opportunities to take responsibility and didn't, and um, ultimately left me abused and abandoned to the foster care system. And I think I was still very deeply angry about that. And, um, and I realized, so I, at that point, I realized that I didn't know how to have compassion for a man and it also wasn't my fault. Um, that the person who was supposed to teach me that didn't. And I said what I think is the first and only prayer I've ever said, and I just gave it up to the powers that be. And I was like, I don't know what this is like, but um, show me. Show me what this is like. Um, and then I went back to painting my toenails. And not long after this, um, I heard a voice. <laughs> and it was, sounded like, 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 hello? And I was like, I am tripping. <laughs> I am definitely tripping. Um, and so I ignored it and I just, I think I, by that time I was you know, spinning around my room and, and then I heard it again. And so I was like, okay, just rationalize. This is, a, this is one of my roommates, they've come home. And I continued to ignore it. And then I heard it louder. And so, so I started to go toward the door. And as I did, the door swung open. And standing in the door jam is this old white man who I have never seen before with like sagging gray skin and watery eyes and he's like leaning against the door frame, breathing heavily and I am immediately terrified. <laughs> I was like, what is this man doing in my house? Um, and how do I get him the fuck out? 
And um, he, he was saying something like he was lost and if I could just point him in the right direction. And I was like, okay, you're great. I was like, I opened the door to the outside. I was like, we can go right out here. And he was like, you know, there was this ramp that was leading down. It was raining and the ramp was covered in water. And he was like, I, I can't make it down that. And I was like, I slammed the door. I was like, okay, that's bullshit, but okay, fine, let's go. And so I was like, let's go. And he was like, after you. And I was like, no, after you. And he was like, no, after you. I was like, no. After you. It's like, no way am I gonna let this guy walk behind me. <laughs> I don't know, walk behind me through the house. That was the slowest walk I have ever been on, just one foot in front of the other, and like all these images are going through my mind. I'm like imagining being thrown down into the basement and the basement door getting closed, and I stay there forever and ever, and then into the house and all of the places that I could be attacked. and and then through the house, and we finally get to the front door, and he takes one painful step over the, the door jam, and then the other, and we get out onto the cement slab of the front door, and I feel this immediate sense of relief to be outside, and, um, and he says, uh, now this scares me. <laughs> Okay, and, um, and um, there were three stairs that led down, and like I said, it was raining and everything was, was pretty wet, and he just didn't move. And I didn't really know what to do, so I was like, well, okay, this is it. If he's gonna kill me, this is the time. So I put my arm out, I offered my arm to him, and, uh, and he grabbed it with both of his hands, and I'm like, one more vision of just being thrown four feet down and dying came through my, <laughs> through my head, and, um, and then we went to take the first step, and he, he, as he went to go put one foot down, leaned what felt like all of his weight onto my arm. And two things happened simultaneously. One, my body braced for the, to take his weight, and I felt my bones stack on top of each other, and I felt this strength go through my body. I felt a sense of worthiness go through my body. And then the other thing that happened was I looked at him and I realized that this was not an act, that this was genuine, that this man could not get down these stairs without my help. And these were stairs that I ran up and down all day. And he had lost, come up these stairs and all the way through that house to find me, and then all the way back through the house. And, and I felt compassion for a man. And um, we took the next two steps the same way and I was filling with all of these things, you know, gentle and kind and, and loving and, and we get down to the bottom of the step and we took a few more, a few more feet together before he kind of realized himself and, and dropped my arm and before I was ready and, <laughs> and I, I said, you're not far, um, you know, the, the covered bridge, which is what he was looking for, was just, I'm like, you're just about a mile away, it's just that way, and he mumbled thank you, and he got into his car, and, um, and I followed him as he went with my eyes, and, I wa and, and when, I, when I looked at the car, there was this beautiful, older Asian woman in this red coat with golden buttons, and she was just glowing golden yellow, in the car dome light and she looked me right in the eyes and she put her hands together and she bowed and then smiled and they drove away 
And I remember um, being flooded with these intense feelings of just love and gratitude and being heard and, and all of these things. And to put it into the theme, um, <laughs> sometimes you have to listen to those flashing caution lights, but probably more often um, you just need to pay attention to that soft golden glow of compassion. Thank you. Christopher Condon! Well, I'm Chris, and I hope you guys are ready to get intimate. So there I was in the devil's bosom, a pornography shop, surrounded by phallic objects, lubricants, and man-made torture devices. And I was there for one reason, and one reason only, and that was to find something for someone to put up my butt. <laughs> I was nervous. This was the first time. I was frozen, and the world was a time-lapse behind me. I had two choices and that was to slam on the brakes and run out screaming, or hit the gas and take the green light. I grew up in a very, very conservative family. My father was raised in a, in a Catholic single home, and by the time he had gotten a uh, stepfather, that man was a alcoholic and verbally abusive. So he learned how to be a man on the streets of San Francisco. <coughs> Excuse me. My mother grew up in a conservative Christian home. My grandfather didn't talk that much, and he had a boat oar hanging on the wall uh, for disciplinary actions. So that was the melting pot that I grew up in. My family would go to church three times a week. We were Baptists, so things like dancing is frowned upon. I was also homeschooled my entire life. I never stepped foot in a public school, not once, with my three siblings. And I remember how my family had rules and regulations. There was red lights and there was green lights. There was, there was good and there was evil. There was glorifying, there was not. And you can imagine what those things were coming from a biblical family. I remember my sex talk very clearly from my parents because it went something like this. That's right, I didn't get one. <laughs> I do remember my sister who was flowering at the time and becoming a woman. She came running up to me with this book clenched in her hands because she was fortunate enough to get at least a book. And she leans in and she whispers, did you know that a man sticks his penis in a woman's vagina, and that's how you make babies. I was very surprised that belly buttons weren't involved at all. <laughs> there was also the time that I found a Western-themed pornography movie in my friend's parents' bedroom. So you can imagine that my first sexual experience went something like this. Howdy, ma'am. <laughs> Would you please accept my genitals? Uh, consent and all, right? Content, yeah. 
So by the time I was 17, I was out of high school for a couple years, and my dad sat me down, and he told me that college was not in my cards, but the military was. So as the good son, about a month and a half later, I left. Basic training all the way. Mom was pissed, never went back. But I excelled because I had grown up in a family that had rules and regulations and moved on to another family that had rules and regulations. There was right and there was wrong. There was getting in trouble and not getting in trouble. And that made things very easy. But I may have, I don't know, accepted the military lifestyle a little bit too easy. I did the whole thing of getting married young, deploying, getting cheated on, coming back, getting a divorce, finding another wife. That one lasted about eight years. So that was good. But in 2014, Chris found himself moving to Boise, single once again, uh, out of the military, and just graduated from art school. <laughs> art school, yeah. So I needed friends because I had none. That was something the military never prepared you for. They say, oh, you don't have benefits, you don't get as much money. No, what you really need to be prepared for is the fact that you don't have any friends anymore. So I turned to online dating. And up to that point, my sexual experience may be considered vanilla, because y'all a bunch of dirty freaks. <laughs> And I'm intrigued. So I did that whole thing, had some fun experiences, and, uh, you know, moved on from one thing to another. And then I met Little Bird. Little Bird is a five foot two, and however many inches short people have to validate themselves as, I don't know, <laughs> Jewish woman. And we hit it off very quickly. It was great. So we got into these conversations about sexual bucket lists. And <laughs> mine's a secret. But I'm going to tell you hers. Hers was this thing called pegging. And I didn't know what that was, but Google did. Pegging is when a woman takes strap-on or a, some sort of penile-like object and dominates her partner in the only hole down south that he has. So being the open-minded person that I was, my answer was, no thank you. That's never gonna happen. Like ever. This conversation came up a few times during our yearish long faux relationship. And one day I had an epiphany. I was like, I like this woman. I should compromise, because that's what people do. I don't know if it was a birthday or something, and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna give her a present. This is gonna be nice. So there I am, Goldilocksing around the pornography store, finding lots of Papa Bears, 
and then some baby bears, but really, do I want to be the guy on those ER stories that lost something inside himself? I don't think so. But then I found it. I named it the USS Enterprise. Because it's boldly going. It was soft, small-ish, bell-shaped, black, of course, and it vibrated, and I didn't know why that was important, but it is. <laughs> so I took my new vessel to the front of the store and embarrassingly talked to the, the the, the woman at the front said, I will take this and all your lube. <laughs> so I get home and I can't remember if I have my dog yet or not. But as Mark Twain said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So I had my dog. She is a <laughs> nine pound Italian greyhound. She is all legs, judgmental eyes, and this long wet nose that you do not want sneaking up on you. So I put her in her kennel and I lower the blanket of shame, put on some Marvin Gaye, lower the lights. This is happening. I unpackage the item and I put it on my desk and I'm looking at it, almost having conversations with it like it's my friend. And I'm not sure how it's gonna work. I mean, I understand that like object A goes in orifice B, but to get it there, I'm unsure. I had one of those chairs that you could like pump up and like let it go and it just slams to the ground, but I thought that might be a little bit too violent. <laughs> Let's just say in the end, it all worked out. I wasn't gonna go into this experience unexperienced, so there was a couple weeks of myself in my basement apartment, which is creepy enough, <clears throat> with the lights down, having intimate moments with my new toy. I felt that I was experienced enough now to invite my lover friend over and gladly give her the gift. So she came over and I was like, look what I have. It's clean, I swear. And there was this Russian roulette that was going on with my asshole. <laughs> where because I had said no, red light, so many times, she wanted to know if I was sure. I thought I was. I had put in all the work, right? But at that moment, I was not quite sure that I was sure. So there was a hesitant moment. And of course, as a good man, I say, yes, of course I'm sure. Are you sure? And there was another awkward silence. And I'm not gonna ruin the story by telling you if we actually went through it or not. 
But this is what I can tell you. I lived most of my life with only red lights and green lights, and that caused no personal growth, no new experiences. I was just me. But allowing these yellow lights into my life has caused, it, it means that tomorrow, I don't know exactly who I'm gonna be, and that's fucking exciting. Don Brockett! All right. So um, I'm sitting on my yoga mat one day in my front room. I'm 25 years old. And I'm pondering my next move in life as though I'm coming up on a yellow light. Am I going to slow down, exercise caution, prepare to stop? Or am I going to just fly through that light and see what's on the other side? And as I'm thinking, a bluebird flies hard into the window and falls. And I'm startled. So I, I jump up and I run for my husband, tell him what happened. And we walk outside to check on the bird to see if it's OK. It is not OK. It's dead. It snapped its neck on impact. And my husband, Charlie, says, well, it didn't suffer, and turns around and walks back in. And I linger, because this bird's fate feels familiar to me. There it was, flying the ultimate sense of freedom into an image that was so beautiful and so enticing, but it was an illusion. It was never there. <laughs> and it never had the opportunity to be warned to this, to recognize this. And upon learning its fate, it had no chance to recover. By that point in my life, I was very aware of the threat of windows. And I had cheated death twice. Prior to meeting Charlie, my closest consort was anorexia nervosa of the restrictive kind. So anorexia, of all of the possible mental health diagnoses, is by far the deadliest. And it affects women more than men by a rate of about 10 to 1. I had two bouts with this monster. And at my lowest, weakest point, at its strongest, I weighed 88 pounds. And I had a 17-inch waist, which I shrouded in layers upon layers of clothing, not only to stay warm, but to avoid the stares of people, because those were the worst. Anorexia is a disappearing act. It's like a constant assault internally on your sense of self-worth. And I imagine it's hard to even fathom what would drive a person to that without understanding a really solid trigger. So let's play with an analogy for just a moment. Pretend that you're in a room and you're having a great time with your friends. You're laughing, you're having fun, and someone enters that room who has a way of taking up all of the space in the room. So maybe they're loud and gregarious, but in, in whatever way they show up, you're no longer comfortable. Your needs are no longer considered. Uh, you don't feel as though there's space for you there. Most people 
will then do one of two things. They'll either confront that person, ask them to back down to create space for the others in the room, or they'll leave and go on their merry way and do their thing. The anorectic does neither of those two things. The anorectic shrinks to the space that she's allowed to have. And that space is defined by others. <clears throat> so as I'm coming out of my last little bout of, uh, of anorexia at the time, I'm in college. and. Uh, it was right at that point that I was beginning to put my identity back together as though made of brick and mortar, having torn it down, starting to put it all back together, figure out who I was, what I wanted, what I needed, what I cared about, what I loved. And at that point, I met Charlie. I was walking out the door of the dorms. He was walking back in. We lived in the same co-ed dorms. And I was headed to see Gladiator, the movie. And uh, on a whim, randomly, truly, I asked if he'd like to join me. He said yes, and uh, off we went. Our first kiss that night lasted for two hours. <laughs> so our desperation was pretty obvious in retrospect. <laughs> and uh, I fell, needless to say, so hard, so fast. He was an Adonis, blonde. Kentucky bluegrass green eyes, tall, lean, athletic. And I just wanted to be consumed by him. I wanted to fall into him so deeply that I couldn't even tease myself out or stand myself up. Because at that point, I didn't have a lot of faith in my ability to stand on my own two feet. I wanted to be consumed by this man. Charlie was Mormon. <laughs> I was not. I was a philosophy student on my way to Paris for graduate school. But I converted, because what the hell? I wanted him to be happy. I wanted it to be so easy on him. It needed to be inarguable in my philosophical mind. And I could inhabit whatever little space was left over for me. I was pro. We married. And at home, we read Siddhartha and Diderot and Patanjali. It was perfect. Nine months into the marriage, Charlie called me into our office to show me something. Who knows what it was? An avalanche of windows came onto his computer screen. And the image that I saw, that I remember, was of Snow White and the seven dwarves and all of the fairy tale creatures having an orgy. I was, yeah, nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. I was startled. I was embarrassed. So I turned quickly and looked away, which only served to sear that image in my visual memory. I had, at that point, not really come to some grand conclusion on porn. I didn't really care about porn. I think the human body is stunning. I'm a pretty damn big fan of sex. And I think consult, um, Consenting adults really should just do whatever makes them happy. Yeah, consenting adults should do whatever makes them happy, exactly. Uh, and this story, let's be clear, is not about porn. It's about lies and addiction 
and how those destroy love. So that was the first time. There were many, many more, many, and we didn't talk about it for a really, really long time. And uh, when we did, it was uncomfortable. So we would go back to not talking about it. And the silence began to take up all of the space in our relationship. And as I felt pushed to the edges, to the corners, I responded in the way I always did. I began to restrict. And I began to run. Because you don't get to 88 pounds without doing some serious running. I signed up for every race within driving distance. And through all of that training, I got to the point where I trained myself for a marathon. I was so excited. I was running 80 to 100 miles a week. And, and I had run many marathon distances previously in my own little personal nighttime calorie burning sessions. But I had never run a public marathon. And I was so excited. I was over the moon. Race morning, Charlie and I shared a pre-race meal. He pinned my number on my jersey. And I walked to the starting line. It was only two blocks from our home. He said, I'll be right behind you. I'm going to cheer you on at the start. Awesome. I'm waiting at the line. The gun goes off. The race begins. And still, there's no Charlie. And all along the route, there's no Charlie. And I get back home. And quick search on his computer history made it really clear where he had been that whole time on that really important day for me. Not the first time something like that had happened. And again, I found myself in this little glass house, in this little corner of someone's life with something else taking up all the space. And I began to reach out. I wanted connection. I craved that sense of consumption again. I wanted to be a part of things. And as I reached out, as I offered anything, I was rejected time and time again. And I was told that I was pure and perfect, which I'm not, by the way, and that that is how I would exist in his world, presumably to shine that pure, perfect light to illuminate this stunning image that we were. And finally, I realized that the familiarity was dangerous. And I pushed back, and I demanded action, something. So Charlie scheduled a meeting with his bishop, who was a darling, darling man, let's be clear. So we go into his office sitting side by side, and Charlie discloses some modicum of what's going on. And the bishop says, it's OK. This happens. Awesome. Because by then, I felt like I was in some sort of twisted form, modern version of Mormon polygamy. <laughs> and OK, so this happens. That means you'll systemize everything. And that means for sure you have a program, you've got something like there is a solution, we're about to hear it. <laughs> and the bishop says, you know what really works for me is when you, <laughs> when you feel tempted, sing a children's hymn. <laughs> yep. Sing a fucking children's hymn. Yep. That was going to save my marriage. 
So we went home from that meeting. Charlie went into the office. I sat on my yoga mat in my front room, staring off, deciding my next move, and I was greeted by a bluebird. When I came back in the house, I registered for my second round of graduate school in France. And as I was packing, thank you, as I was packing and preparing, Charlie asked if he could give me a priesthood blessing before the flight. And I said, no. <laughs> My ability to pretend stops somewhere shy of receiving your blessing. So I teased myself out. I stood myself up on my own two feet that had carried me so far, though I had not yet recognized it. I got on that plane. I did not slam into the glass. I did not go numb. And I did not die. I flew through that yellow light straight to Paris. Thanks for listening. Story Story Late Night is brought to you by our story party. Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Nicholas Warden, and me, Jody Eichelberger. Thank you to our season sponsor, Over 19 Adult Shop, and the Yellow Light Show sponsor, the Story Story Night Board of Directors. The Story Story Late Night theme song is by Ned Evett, with podcast production by Stephen Baldessari, featuring live music from Eric Henderson. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and YouTube at Story Story Night.